Peter Thomas Fornital here. We at In The Money Media are so happy to be partnering with Maggie Wolfendale on this new podcast series. On these shows, Maggie is telling the story of the horses through the voices of the people who love them and whose lives have been changed by them. Best of all, they're being produced to benefit our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, whose mission of saving lives, both human and equine, is so important to Maggie and so important to us at the network. To make a gift to support this show and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, go to trfinc.org slash off track. That's trfinc.org slash off track. The next voice you hear will be Maggie Wolfendale. January 5th, 2008, in California, by Roman Dancer, out of City Mouse, by Rahi, 11 starts, 2 firsts, 2 seconds, 1 third, earnings, $16,485, jockey club name, Glorious Dancer. This is her story as told by Michael Baychock whose life was changed by her winning on the track, who then decided to change her life for the rest of her days off track. with Michael Baychok of Baychok Racing, um, an owner. He won the NHC championship in 2012, but a horse that's very special to him because of that NHC championship, Glorious Dancer. Michael, first, before we kind of get into how your story's intertwined with hers, talk a little bit about how you got into the sport of horse racing. So my story is no different than many others. Um, uh, when I was 12 years old, uh, a friend of my father's took me to the track. Uh, I, he was supposed to babysit me at 12 years old. If you can babysit somebody, he worked for my dad and he, he told my dad, Hey, I'm going to the track. And he goes, okay, we'll just take Michael. So I went to the track. And as soon as I got there, which was here at the fairgrounds, um, I just fell in love with it. It was just like an instant, um, an instant feeling of this is something that I really want to do and and just would end up loving ultimately the competition first of all the the being able to compete against the guys you know picking horses that was fun I'm a very competitive person um and then you know as I just got older and got more into the handicapping part of it really the what has kept me really into the game is the horses the athletes themselves um and that wasn't always like that. It was, it was not, I, I was much more into the gambling and, you know, almost like horses were disposable and, you know, just let them run. I don't even know their names. I'm betting on numbers, that kind of thing, you know, and it just turned into, you know, it's all about the athletes and how we treat them and what they provide to us. And I never, I didn't really appreciate that for many, many, many years. 
was there a specific time, a specific turning point in that mindset? Yeah, there was. So my father, we, my father ultimately got into horse racing with me because it was something I enjoyed. So he wanted to spend time with me. So we would go to the track Thanksgivings. Uh, we'd spend here at the fairgrounds and we ended up going to like 20 derbies in a row, uh, starting in like 79. Uh, yeah. And we had a group of guys from Baton Rouge that would go. And, um, you know, I was like the resident expert, the kid. And then the young man that was, you know, the, the handicapper and, in 86, I started, I said, Ferdinand was going to be my horse early, like in December of 85. Mm-hmm. And so when he won the Derby, we're in this box at the track and um, he comes past us and he's, he's leading. And I turn around and I look at my dad and I'm going to cry because I get very emotional about this. But uh, he had tears in his eyes because not because he was going to win a lot of money because Ferdinand was 16 to one or whatever. But because he was just proud that, you know, that I had done something, you know, and he was just proud of the accomplishment. So that was 86. So fast forward, you know, probably 10 years, because I know Ferdinand was sent to Japan. I think he was slaughtered in early 2000s. I don't know that I really grasped the the news until like maybe 2005. It just seems like that's when I heard about it. Right. And that was just, that, that just, you know, hit me just like it hit everybody. Like, are you kidding me? How could this possibly happen? This is like, you know, uh, this is horse was a hero of mine, uh, you know, changed my life almost, you know? So I just kind of got a little bit more, you know, interested in, in, uh, in what the, what the afterlife or the aftercare or what happens after they get off the racetrack. So I gave money to like Ferdinand's ball. I think they had in Kentucky. I don't know if they still have it. And I probably, you know, gave donated to some, some organization, but back then I don't know that there really was, you know, as many, certainly not now. So this is a long story. I'm sorry, but okay. So, So as we go, you know, so I got a little active and then, um, when, when I won the NHC, uh, the horse that won it for me, which you mentioned was glorious dancer. And this was the last race of the contest. And she was, she had never won a race before she was running at golden gate. It was a maiden claimer eight, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Eight or 10. Yeah. <laughs> and I had the idea, which my wife, uh, didn't like at the time, uh, but ultimately came around that I was going to buy this horse. Um, you know, I thought it would be fun to, to, to buy the horse and, you know, race her and cause she, you know, she did something for me. I wanted to do something for her, but then I started thinking like, Oh my God, what if I don't buy this horse? And the next two races she ran, she got down to like, you know, 62, five. And like, I knew at that time, cause this was 2013, I knew cause I'd done, you know, enough learning about aftercare where horses end up after, you know, there's no, there's nowhere to go at golden gate when you hit the bottom of the claiming ranks and you can't win, you know, you're going to Mexico basically to be be slaughtered. So I bought her, I claimed her. Um, and we ran her a couple of times. Steve Sherman, Art Sherman's son was my trainer, terrific fella. You know, he, she actually won a race. Um, and he says, look, she's got a, you know, she's got a issue. We're going to, you know, do this. We'll give her, this, she may need to lay up for six months. I said, look, 
it's done. Okay. I'm bringing her back to Louisiana. She's going to retire. Mm-hmm. She changed my life. I'm going to make sure that at least one horse, you know, has the kind of life that she should have. She should enjoy. She's young. She's four years old. So we, I got her back here. I got her into a, um, an Louisiana aftercare program and she got adopted, uh, by a neurosurgeon here in new Orleans that, uh, is that trained her to be a polo pony Wow! and she travels the world. She goes to Brazil South. She goes to Miami. Uh, she's still, she's still playing and she's pretty good, Yeah, you know? So she's still alive. Yeah. Yeah. The doctor rides her. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Lori Summers. Um, she lives across the lake in Folsom. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, she's, that that changed you know her her trajectory because I, I know he, that what the trajectory was going to be unfortunately. Well, it sounds like she changed your life in that one day, but you changed the rest of her life. Well, she changed the rest of my life. I mean, I wouldn't be here talking to you if she wouldn't have won that race. You know, I I wouldn't have met so many people that I now consider you know lifelong good friends in the industry. I've just had so much luck after that one event, being able to meet people uh, to that enrich my life. You know, um, some of the best people in the world are horse racing people. They come from all different kinds, all different walks of life. And I've just been so lucky to experience meeting different folks. Um, it's just made my life richer. So yeah, look, I wanted to do what I could and, you know, we all give speeches at the Eclipse Awards. So when I gave my speech, instead of talking about, you know, my handicapping prowess or I talked about what, what the industry, including horse players, could do more, could do more for these for horses after care. Because I know that as a horse player, I did not appreciate the athletes that they are and they give everything they can. I, I just wanted to use that um that podium to speak to people and say, look, we got to do more. And that was 2013, 20, yeah, 2013. And I think we've made giant strides since then. Giant strides. I could not agree with you more. I mean, the, the aftercare programs that we see uh, presently are just thorough and provide so many different outlets, whether it's communication between the track and the, the people that want to retire them or giving lifelong sanctuary, like the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, but I want to, you know, because you're, this is the third episode and you are the first horse player I've <laughs> had on. And so for somebody that wasn't brought up as a horseman, what, when you met, did you get to meet Gloria Stancer oh, in yeah. person? Oh, yeah. What was it like for you to meet her in person and touch her and pet her and just be around that her. Yeah. So when we got her back here to Louisiana, I had her sent to a farm, a friend of mine, um, over in Maurice, Louisiana. Um, and so I went over there, yeah. you know, and, and, and it just, as it happened, he wasn't there that day. And he says, look, I had my, I had my wife with me and, uh, he wasn't there, but it's like, she's in this field. She's in my barn, my barn, my, my field, go see if you can, you know? And so, you know, we're looking around and, you know, cause I mean, I'm not a horseman. So, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know, but I knew what she looked like cause her nose was, you know, plastered into my brain cause she won the race by a nose. Um, so I walked around the fence and there she was and it was muddy. I remember. And she just walked right over to me 
And uh, it was, it was emotional. Gosh. I mean, it just brings up so much um, because she really has changed, you know, my life for the better. A horse, yeah. a horse can do that. So, you know, and then I saw her again when she went to um, Dr. Summers. I went over there and visited her and I hadn't seen her recently. Um, I've been meaning to get over, but I need to get over. So I see her every now and then. But, you know, I just want horse players because I know we're a crusty, uh, you know, bunch opinionated. And um, if they just took a little bit of time of their day when they're handicapping horses just to appreciate how how much these horses give mm-hmm. uh, to us. You know, you're sitting at your house, you're at a track, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if it wasn't for these horses. You know, we'd be doing something else. And I know, again, it's just, that's really kind of the voice that I want to bring to horse players if I'm speaking for anybody or actually I'm speaking to them. You know, just take a little time and appreciate, you know, uh, what they do for us. They're truly one of the most majestic creatures uh, that grace this planet. But you mentioned horse players, and for a horse player, I'm sure many, the dream is to win the National Handicapping Challenge. What, or contest rather, take us back to that day. Take us back to zeroing in on Glorious Dancer, having her, and just leading up to that race, and when she stuck her nose out in front. Yeah. Um, So I had had a pretty good day. You know, you just have one of those days you've had them. Every horse player's had them where really you could do almost nothing wrong. You know, everything, every decision you make is right. You know, whether do I play this one, do I play that one? But in the last race, you know, I was behind in the contest. Um, so I had to make the right decision. I knew exactly how much money and how much, how what the odds needed to be on a horse to win. You know, she had her. She, I was using Thorograph back then, uh, still do sometimes, and she had a good Thorograph number. And I said, look, I'm just not going to let the horse with the best Thorograph figure beat me because that's that's what I use. But she had to be the right odds. So the whole drama on top of drama was, you know, w- would she be three to one? Uh, because that's what I needed. And so I'm waiting at the machine to place my bet. I got my my son. He's in the ballroom. He's watching the you know the thing. He's gonna he's gonna be yelling. You know when if she because I'm at the machine, I can't see it. If she drops to two to one, which they horses do, and I made the bet, and not ten seconds later, I hear my son say, "She's five to two. She's." I was like, you know, and I'm just like at that point, I just said, "I'm done. I'm just I'm I'm in. It's on her. I'm in. Yeah. I mean." I'm going to pray that she goes up, you know, and, and she actually, I think she went off at five to two. Like when they jumped the yeah. gate, she was five to two. Yeah. And so she wins and I'm standing there. If you've seen the video, I'm just so stoic and people, you know, comment on how, you know, calm. And I was just freaked out, you know, really. It I mean, like I was trying, I told inside. myself before the race, I'm just going to take it all in like a Zen moment, yeah. try to experience it. And I got really too deep into that, you know, because then I just like completely zombied out. All these people are going nuts around me. And finally, I go nuts when she wins. And I didn't know until a minute or two after the race when my friend Patrick Magui, who has won the Breeders' Cup Challenge twice, oh, yeah. uh, he, he screams in the corner, she's three to one. She's, you know. And so it was just, you know, my wife was there, which was wonderful. My son, my brother. It was just one of those. 
fairy tales. Yeah, it really was. It really was. And, you know, um, I owe it all to her. I mean, I didn't do any running, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, she just, she, she, she really had a big heart. She has a big heart because she just, she broke last and, you know, Golden Gate sprint races. When you break last, you're in bad shape. And she just got, uh, she got going in the stretch and she got up in the last, in the last jump. So as I'm wiping away, still my tears. So tears of joy though. Tears well, of joy. I, yeah, absolutely. Probably one of the happiest moments yeah. of your life. And to have all your family there, I think obviously made it that much more special too for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was, again, it was, you know, you can't, you can't script it. Right. Uh, so somebody was sending me a message, you know, like, Hey, look, you got to do something. You're going to have a platform. You're going to have a voice. You know, you can communicate. You need to make sure that folks know how important horses are. Not just, I mean, not while they're racing, but after they're racing. Cause it's just that we're just, we're not taking care of them. And it, in 2012, we weren't, you know, we were, in, as the industry, I think, um, we were in a better place than we were five years before that, yeah. but we weren't really in a good place. Yep. You know, I think we're in a, I want to say we're in a good place now, but I know from my experience working in Louisiana recently over the past two or three years, we're not in that good place and we can be in a much better place. We got recently last year, actually, we got a $5 per entry fee mandatory passed in the legislature to go to aftercare. Now it's only a couple hundred grand a year. That's a 200,000 more than they've had before. You know, what we do need to do now because we have a real problem is we must pass some sort of legislation like New York passed recently that bans thoroughbreds from going to kill pins. Um, totally. And I think that's doable. I know we have the legislative support. Um, and that's going to be my, my goal for this year to get done. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be this year, but we'll get it done in the next two years. It has to get done. And as somebody who not going into what you do, but has political, political interests and ties, is that something you strive for that you've kind of set out to to do? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just getting the $5 per entry fee passed was huge. Yep. Uh, the president of the Senate here, who is a, who's a Republican, mm-hmm. <laughs> and as people know, I'm a Democrat, uh, but he's a very good friend of mine. He loves the races. He's been to the Derby, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years now mm-hmm. in a row. He loves horses, owns horses. Um, he's all on board for it. So, you know, while we have the friendships and that we can uh, leverage to do things for horses that will change their, you know, their their outcomes for generation to come, we should do that. And so I'm going to work on that uh, this year. Now for you and I, obviously I knew about you and winning the, the NHC, but kind of gotten to know each other through Twitter and your appreciation and admiration for the horse does come through when you tweet. And I, I think we have a common horse crush that we <laughs> like to joke about, yeah. um, our boy 91 assault. But I just, I think it's so cool that you just kind of, you know, find these horses that you've liked to bet on, but that you also kind of fall in love with in a way. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, you know, I don't know because I've never met him. He's special. I mean, he just, he does his business uh, when you ask him to do his business and he does it 
you know, well, and he does it better here at the fairgrounds than any other place in that he ever runs. And it's just kind of, it's weird. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when you say horse for course, there there are certain horses for courses. And he certainly, as I I think he's won eight or nine. He's won eight here. Eight at the, I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing. And he's old too now. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I'm going to tell you, but I just, you know, he's won me some money, but I mean, he's not, he's certainly been, He's been a favorite most of the times, you know, yeah, but, um, that much. but I just appreciate that, you know, there's an athlete, um, that is that, and for horse years, eight is old, but to be at his level, the top, he's still running very, his fastest races at eight years old. He obviously loves to do it because mm-hmm. if he didn't love to do it, he, you know, they, they, they wouldn't be as fast. And to me, that's just so admirable. I mean, I don't want to make a human to horse comparison, but Tom Brady at 43, if he didn't really want to, no matter how good he is, if he, if you don't have the motivation to do it and love what you're doing, you ain't going to do it. So, you know, he's, he's, he's the Tom Brady to me. And he's I, the Tom Brady of the fairgrounds. <laughs> yeah. And I want to run him in the uh, Mervyn Munez. I mean, I know that's a big number and it's a, it's, you know, but, He's, I think he needs to get a chance to beat the big boys. Well, he just I really needs a do. Chance to run. Right. That might be our last option, right. to be I just, honest. But I think he would give a fair account of himself if not win. I think he just does enough. He knows what his job is. His job is to get to the to beat the rest of the horses when they're running down this stretch at the fairgrounds. And I know that he'll he'll get there. He'll so get there. You're not the only person besides me as well that loves him. A funny story this past uh, the. Closing day at Saratoga, you know, obviously Bill Mott trained him before and uh, Tom bought him privately from his owners. And Bill had a huge closing day at the spa. I mean, he won three races, including a stake, and I'm riding out of the paddock on on my horse um, after completing the show. And he said to me, oh, 91 Assault. And I congratulated him and blah, blah, blah. He just turns to me, he goes, yeah, 91 Assault ran really well at Laurel today in the stake. I just kind of looked blankly. I'm like, Bill Mott's paying attention to 91 Assault at Laurel. So he really, Bill loved him. All of his staff loved him. And uh, pleased to say that we all love him Yeah, we love him. But um, so as far as Gloria's Dancer is concerned, how old is she now? She's 16? No, no, no. I think she's 13. I think she's about 13, 12 or 13. Yeah. And as far as I know, I haven't checked on her in the last couple of three months, six months, maybe with the pandemic. I know that Laurie hasn't been able to travel with her. So Laurie usually posts pictures on Facebook. Hey, we're in, you know, Miami, we're in Brazil, we're in somewhere, Argentina, I guess, Argentina, you know. Uh, So I'll check in on her. Well, it's just amazing that she gets to travel like that and just live her best life. Yeah, she's living her best life. That's so cool. And so am I. Thanks to her. For you... Are there any other goals for you as far as being involved in horse racing? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I know, with the um, with the passage of the Horse Integrity and Safety Authority, you know, I'm willing to give them uh, every opportunity to do what they are promising to do, mm-hmm. um, which is to rid horse racing as much as they can of, you know, as many of the drugs um, illegal ones that, you know, they can. So I'm very hopeful that, um, that they're going to have some, some real impact, 
um, on on that part of the game, and then also, of course, on the safety part because the, you know they're a safety or authority too, which is aftercare. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm very hopeful that that this new authority, um, unfortunately, it's a federal takeover, um, has some effect on on our industry because I don't think we can sustain the path that we're on right now. Um, there are too many people that you know are in this game and have been in this game for a long time that are ready to get out because of what they see every day with uh, illegal drugs. And it's, it's just not a PR uh, path that we can continue. Uh, It's unfair to the horses and uh, you know, people are becoming more aware of our treatment of animals and treatment of horses. And um, it's just not something we're going to be able to sustain unless we take action. So I'm very hopeful that the right people, um, we'll take action on the board. Uh, hopefully I'm one of them. Uh, and if not, I'll work as hard as I can to make sure they're successful. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for all that you do as far as, you know, just coming into this game as you did as just a young handicapper and better and your career in this sport evolving as it has and and really striving to make a difference. So again, thank you. And thanks for joining me here live. Live Start date 2021 at the fairgrounds. Well, thank you. And obviously you can tell I'm passionate uh, and sometimes emotional about, about the horses and I'll, I'll, you know, any opportunity I have to hopefully uh, give voice to, you know, this, this opinion uh, that we need to take care of them. Um, I'm ready to do so. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this edition of Off Track. I really enjoyed my time sitting down with Michael Baychok at the fairgrounds. For someone who's never been physically around horses, It was really interesting to hear his point of view from a player's point of view of how much he enjoys watching, how much respect and admiration he has for the equine athletes. And he's really been an advocate for horses in aftercare. Now, some horses, they are unable to go on to second careers. And for them, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation does provide lifelong sanctuary and care. And if you'd like to help out in a small way, make sure you check out trfinc.org slash off track to donate. Kind of finalized his eventing career back in 2019, but it wasn't with Philip. It was actually with your daughter Olivia. Um, how long did she ride him? Yeah, no, she um, rode him um, for I think it was at least one full season, um, and took him up to you know the preliminary level and had good success and um, really in you know. She loves him too, and occasionally I let her get on him again. <laughs> <laughs> so he's purely just kind of mom's horse. Pretty much right now. Well, he's yeah. he's up here too. So Philip's in Florida with his horses, and Ichabod's up here in Pennsylvania with Evie. Mm. Now, how how old is Olivia? She's nineteen now. Is 
eventing and riding kind of what she's going on, kind of following in her parents' footsteps? Yes. Um, she is extremely passionate about it. And um, she is at University of Kentucky, which is a great location. So she can still, you know, ride while she's doing her studies and um, right in the heart of thoroughbred world there. And um, also, you know, lots of events. And um, so she's managing um, to do both at the moment. Good for her. That That's a lot of work to take on for sure to show and have a full class schedule at a university. Um, as far as Ichabod in the future, I mean, is he just a horse that is going to be kind of your guy? And would he be, would you give lessons on him or is he just kind of content to to be Evie and Icky? <laughs> Um, I, I suppose we could, um, you know, and occasionally we'll have a working student and, um, you know, Philip will give them a lesson on Ichabod because he, you know, Philip mentioned how correct he is and he's so honest and, you know, he really, he's a good schoolmaster that way. So, um, I think if the moment is right or you know it, then for sure but I don't think he'd become you know kind of a lesson horse so to speak he's you know, too too fancy too fancy too, too, <laughs> too special he's too pretty for that um Anita do um you said that he is at Tree Prospect, which is close to you guys. How often does does Graham get to enjoy some of his, of his former charges in the show world? Um, he actually rode out with <laughs> Philip. Was it last year or the year before? I think it's when Philip had to had to stay home for the winter. Um, Graham would go over there. I was, I was pretty out. nervous about it, Maggie. I have to say. So. <laughs> He didn't. Graham said that he would. You made him jump, and he's like, "I haven't jumped in." 20, 20 years. I'm not. I'm not sure you call it jumping. It's more <laughs> hanging on. We so. say we got this, uh, you know, documented. Yeah. yeah. But I think did Graham ride about then? I think he might have. Yeah. 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 So they, they, you know, that awful trotting on the roads. Didn't they do road work? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it was painful, but Graham actually kind of enjoyed it. But um, I mean, he enjoys all the um you know all the conversations and i think he just enjoys the whole side of it and also you know encouraging our owners to get involved as well and it's quite funny because one of our owners when he he owns part of lincoln's address and i kind of cajoled him into staying in on board as part owner with the horse and supporting him and i said he said so you know will we sell him and i said not necessarily you know we we would like to get him as high as we can you know and potentially he could be a five-star horse maybe be worth money but that's not the end goal it's just to have that ride that we want to have and promote him and and he said so how long do I need to wait for that and I said well about 10 years (laughs) (laughs) and so every time I check in with him now and say you know what he's doing and how he's doing he said so I only have nine and a half years to go and (laughs) yep pretty much it's all about the patience for sure now philip uh you're are you in florida 
I'm in Florida, yes. And uh, Wellington. <clears throat> Wellington. And is that the yearly kind of travel for you? Is is obviously when it's not freezing and snowing and miserable in the Northeast, <laughs> you are there. Um, but during the winter months in Florida? Yeah, I mean, it varies from year to year. Uh, but certainly the eventing season starts up in February in the South. And so, you know, to be stay competitive and to stay a part of it, you know, you've got to sort of start early and get the horses legged up and get the training into them and the jumping into them. And obviously being in Pennsylvania, the only way you can do that is in the indoor arena, which is you know, some kind of limits to what you can do there. So, um, you know, we have a farm in Aiken in South Carolina, so we you know have spent time there. But this year um, in Wellington in Florida because of, you know, certain circumstances worked out for us to do it. And uh, so, yeah, so the horses are here and, uh, you know, we're getting in some good work and there's um, some dressage and show jumping competitions going on that I can compete at and uh you know obviously some of the best riders in the world are based here for the winter and so it's it's good for me to be able to get some help here as well uh how many horses do you have down there with you um i think we've got like nearly 14 so we've got a couple of students came with us as well your career it spanned at least 25 years uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not good at remembering stuff like how long I've been doing it, but my wife keeps track of me. But yeah, I, I came over in uh, 1990, I think, and my first world championships were 94. Um, and then I've been kind of going at it ever since then. Well, what was the decision for you personally to come to America and then also show for United States? Um, as opposed to showing for Australia, which obviously you've done in the past as well. Yeah, so um, I come over as an Australian citizen and uh, with that thoroughbred horse, uh, actually come on the plane with him, uh, True Blue Girdwood, and uh, mm -hmm. the idea, he was a, just virtually off the track and so he was very green. And um, uh, most of the my compatriots went to England and I had this idea that um, I it would be hard for me to go to England with a very green horse and get work and be able to pay my way. So I sort of decided to come to America. And uh, But I, the idea was that I'd be here for a year or so and then move to England. And um, uh, in the meantime, I met a cute girl and ended up staying here and, uh, you know, the rest is history. So, uh, But I represented Australia um, through until uh, uh, 2007. So I... I rode on the Australian team at the Olympics and all that kind of stuff until 2007 and then um, had this decision. You know, obviously we had, our family was here and um, America had been great to me and I'd done a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the, the owners that I had were all American and so, so I've made the um, kind of big decision for me at the time to change my nationality and so ever since then I've represented um, America. Now, not to get too off-topic or personal, how did you and Evie meet? I gave her a lesson. <laughs> oh, God. It's uh, back of a horse, right? <laughs> yeah. No, we were, we, we got, uh, we were, you know, I, I moved into the area and Evie had a fox hunting horse, actually. So, um, and I was, uh, started teaching people and, uh, 
we've become friends that way. Um, so Evie, you fox hunted. Have you ever fox hunted in England? No, actually I haven't. I, I can't say I'm a big fox hunter, but I, I sort of did the show hunters growing up and, um, came everyone in, in our area in Unionville sort of fox hunts. So I thought that's what I wanted to do, but, um, I started taking some lessons from Philip and he said, you should try this eventing. And I thought eventing was crazy and didn't understand it. But once I learned about the sport more and um, I really enjoyed the goals that you set and, you know, learning how to train your horse and um, to do the different phases. And, you know, I just found that it was just a sport for, you know, the all around um, horsemen and, and horse. And so I started um, competing and eventing and Philip taught me how. And um, so that's kind of how it started. He won your heart and your riding career. <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> Anita, you'll appreciate the fact that I've only been fox hunting in England. Oh my so, God. You're brave. Yeah. It, yeah, it, well, you know, there's always a gate. <laughs> but now that we've gone really kind of meandering, but getting back to Ichabod, um, Evie, feel free to to answer these. I, I kind of give these little short answer questions uh, in regards to him, and sometimes they catch people off guard, so you can pass if you'd like. But um, I'll throw them your way, and whoever wants to answer, feel free. Um, if Ichabod had a theme song, what would it be? Mm. Oh, my goodness. Pass. We'd have to have more time to think about that one. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I, you know, I just think of kind of the Sleepy Hollow music oh yeah i don't even know what that would be but anyway as far as his taste buds are concerned is he a sweet tooth kind of man peppermints and sugars or a healthy guy in peppermints or excuse me carrots and apples he is sweet tooth all the way (laughs) peppermints that um he knows when I'm, you know, the tack is coming off. He's ready for his peppermints. And you kind of mentioned this. His favorite thing in life to do is? Jump. Yeah, jump. Yeah, yeah. He does. I I was thinking eat peppermints, but no, he, (laughs) he, um, he does love to jump. Does he just know it's a jumping day? And is he one that's just into the bridle once you, you put a fence in front of him? Yes, he is. But he's, he's, you know, he's sharp and he's, but he's, um, he's just always looking for it and he just, he gets excited and, um, and he clears it by daylight. Yeah. And then he jumps really huge and hopefully I don't get jumped out of the tack. But, um, didn't Olivia, she was going to use him for the, um, puissance bareback. (laughs) Really? Yes. And it was, it was impossible to stay on him because he pops you out of the saddle so much. And so she opted for another horse because he's, and he's got a really high wither as well. Mm. He wouldn't have been the perfect horse for that. Yeah. A lot of those thoroughbreds, the older they get, the more pronounced those withers become. But what would be his biggest dislike? 
Well, I think Philip um, talked about this um, earlier. We have this stream out back of, on our farm, and we often hack back there. And there's like a little, it's not really a bridge, but it's um, a crossing. And there is no way you're going near that. And I mean, he just... He, we start walking down, and he just turns around and he says, "No, mom, we're not, we're not doing that." So, he definitely doesn't like that. Wait, is there? Do you have you come up with a reason why? I, I, I think you know he's not a big water fan, as Philip mentioned. But um, he, I, I don't know, it's spooky, and he just, yeah, he's he's just says no. And I don't really see a reason. We can go around it, you know. Like it's. It's fine. He doesn't doesn't owe us anything. So, yeah. So you're the good cop. In other words, <laughs> I, I try to be all the time. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, if you could sum up Ichabod Icky in three words, what would they be? Gentlemen, workmen, um, special, professional. Dependable. Just everything that you want in a horse. I think um, Philip actually um, said in one of his seminars that he did that he would be the kind of guy, you know, that would make a good boyfriend (laughs) because he's got all the qualities of a man that you would want. If only we could all have men like (laughs) (laughs) Well. Well... Go ahead. Anita and Evie, they're very lucky, so they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I, I can I can surely attest to that. Um, well, guys, thank you so much for your time. I know you're all very busy. And thank you for being such good people to Ichabod and giving him such a wonderful life off track. Well, it's our privilege to have him, so uh, we feel very lucky. So. Well, thank you for your time, and may his days be full of peppermints. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Maggie. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to... Ichabod Crane's story off track. Unfortunately, there are some horses who aren't able to go on to second careers, and for them, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation provides lifelong sanctuary and care. And if you'd like to support them, make sure you check out trfinc.org slash off track.